There is a uh, slide show presentation aid. That's the good word. Because uh, this is not really a show or a presentation. Uh, we're not putting together a major production. But we are going to look at Daniel chapter 8. And I think that these will be helpful. I am concerned that you do not just... Close your, your, your mind and hear words droning off in a distance. Um, Daniel is seeing something. What he sees is relevant. It's applicable. And we are going to consider it uh, this morning. Before we do, I'm going to remind you of a few things I've already shared. Um, the, one, of, one of them being, uh, we should care about all of this prophecy stuff. You can go to the next slide. Josh is going to have to stay on his toes. Uh, Josh may be a prominent person in the sermon this morning. If he falls behind, I will say his name probably 20 times. So he has a copy of the sermon. He should know what he's doing. We'll just all keep our fingers crossed and see how he does. Why is this important? Uh, why should I care about this? First reason, um, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. This is not in here as some random side section. Okay, this is not a side topic in the Bible. Uh, there are 16 major prophetical books in the Bible, and that's not counting the book of Revelation. This is, this is the Word of God. We are supposed to consider this. Does that mean we need to be an expert in everything? No. Does that mean we should consider it? Yes. Let's focus now, because this is important. Um, the next part, uh, Josh. These are not hard things. Now on the slide I put, it's not that hard, with an emphasis on that hard. Um, it's not that difficult. Uh, here is a, a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter acknowledges that there are hard things in the Bible. And, and I'll read it to you as best I can see from the screen back there. It says, Also our beloved brother, brother Paul... Have you ever read some of Paul's letters in the New Testament and thought, man, this stuff seems complicated? Well, Peter agrees with you. He says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. And he says, There are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people were not to be either one of those, either untaught or unstable, but which they twist to their own destruction as they do also with the rest of scriptures. Um, he says, you therefore, don't do that. But beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know there are hard things in the scriptures, you know there are difficult things, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away in the air of the wicked. Beware, there are people who do wrong things with these passages, but Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But don't ignore them. Grow in your understanding of these things. So, it's important. It's not that hard. And finally, these things bring glory to God. Um, up here is a passage from Isaiah 46. And this is God speaking, comparing Himself to all of the false gods that are in the world. And here's what God says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. 
One of the ways God distinguishes himself from all the false deities in the world is his ability to speak to future things as if they have already happened. His certainty about what will unfold. Um, a lot of times, you could be mistaken in your understanding of the Christian faith as we preach the gospel and we share very truly, as, as Tim prayed, that God has done a great deal for us and He has saved us, He has gone to a cross for us, He has done this out of love for us, and yet we would be mistaken to think that the Bible is about you and, and I. It's not. This is about God. And, and when we only pay attention to the parts that seem to you know, help me and tell me what to do in my life and speak to me and my experience, we are missing the point. This is not about you. This brings glory to God. So that's the reminder. And now we will jump into the text. Uh, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 8. If you turn your Bibles, if you're not there, to Daniel 8. We're going to read the first uh, eight verses. We'll comment along the way. It says... In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So here we get a sense of two things. One, the timing, and two, the location. The timing, the location. Daniel has a vision, which is after the vision from chapter 7. Specifically, we know two years afterward because we're given a time frame in the first verse of each chapter. He had a vision in chapter 7. He has a different one in chapter 8. Chapter 7 ended with Daniel being very troubled by the vision that he saw. Um, two years have passed. We can assume he is still contemplating these things and he is still troubled by them. In this vision then, two years later, he is in a place, Shushan. Specifically, he is in the palace. Some translations say the citadel. The word is synonymous in the Old Testament. He is by a river, which the palace in Shushan historically was, and he's in the province of, El of Elam. In other words, the vision Daniel is having is a vision about Persia. He is in Persia. Now, Persia, uh, we uh, often would call modern-day Iran. Persia is a very well-known play, historical place with a, a rich history. I don't think Daniel is physically in Persia because he lived in Babylon. At the end of the chapter, it says he's going to resume going about the business of the king in Babylon. But in this vision... He is in Persia. That's the perspective that he is seeing this through. Verse 2 says, I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai in Persia. Now at this point in history, Persia is a rising power. Remember, Daniel is, is, is seeing this during the very end of the Babylonian Empire. Now the Babylonian Empire is going to come to a conclusion when they're defeated by the Persians. Okay, and so he is seeing what's going to happen next, and he's already in this vision, seeing it from the perspective of the Persians, even though he himself is still serving the Babylonian king Belshazzar in Babylon. So we understand the time, near the end of the Babylonian empire, two years after the last vision, and we understand the place in Persia. Now verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes... 
And I saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now on this slide, you might be able to see a couple of pictures. Uh, they are both from the historical palace in Shushan in the Persian Empire. The one is a pillar, a structure holding up beams. And you can see, maybe make out from the, the image at a distance here, those sculptures are of rams with ram's horns supporting the beam. The other is from a relief, which is a, a decorative wall that's been completely excavated from that palace. You can see it's very colorful and it pictures a winged ram with horns. This is how the palace was adorned and decorated. Both of these are on display in Paris at the Louvre. So this is well known historically that the Persians uh, uh, pictured themselves with this imagery of a ram. That's what Daniel is seeing while he's in Elam. All right, next slide, Josh. Verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had the two horns which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, on this slide, you can see a picture from ancient Egypt. That's the sculpture that you see first moving from left to right. This is of the goat god Amon, or Amon, from ancient Egypt. He was associated with the pharaohs and the Egyptians. And then a sculpture, a sculpture from the 5th century BC, which was before the time of Alexander the Great, before the Greek Empire, and this is a sculpture of the Egyptian god Amon combined with the Greek god Zeus. In the Greek mythologies, it was very common for one god to combine with another in some kind of representation. You can see a uh, hundred or so years before Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, the Greek peoples had already associated this goat god, Amon, with their chief god, Zeus, and were depicting Zeus with the sculpture of these horns of a goat on his head. Uh, this is a pretty clear symbology here. Um, uh, Alexander came to prominence uh, in the 4th century, so sometime after uh, this sculpture was done. And he associated himself with the god Zeus, um, specifically this representation of Amon Zeus. There are sculptures of Alexander 
himself with horns. Uh, he believed he was a son of these gods and not his biological father. There was a lot of controversy around that. And depicted himself as a god, died believing that he was himself divine from the Greek mythology. All just interesting symbology here. Now to summarize this, in Daniel's vision, a ram goes to war with the goat which sounds ridiculous, let's just be honest. We don't talk like that, but it's because we have no context for us. Uh, it's not silly if you understand the historical context, hence the pictures with some of the ancient things as a reference. In the ancient religions of the Middle East, uh, the guardian spirit of the Persians uh, is uh, pictured underneath a ram with sharp horns. In fact, many historians have observed that when the Persian king went to war, when they were conquering, he didn't wear a crown or a diadem. He wore the head of a ram at the, at the front of the army. That was his crown. That was his uh, symbology in warfare. Um, similarly, here is Daniel carried away to Persia. And in this vision, he sees Persia, this nation at war, and it's pictured as a ram. Also in ancient times, the people of Greece were represented in cosmology uh, as the sign of the Capricorn, that is the goat. The word Capricorn is derived from the Latin word capper, which means goat, and cornu, which means horn. Uh, cosmology, which is looking at the stars to understand a religious meaning for the world around us, was very important to pagan religions of the ancient world. So here Daniel is not merely seeing two animals fighting each other. He is seeing two animals in the ancient religions of those peoples representing two different kingdoms. Uh, the imagery is not lost on Daniel or his reader. We read it, it sounds kind of trite, kind of silly. Two animals fighting. It's not so silly when you understand it. We have some of this today. The eagle has been associated with various nations and world powers. The bear has been associated with Russia and other nations. Uh, but it's not as prominent because we don't put religious connotations into all of it. In ancient times, they did. Now, in this vision, the ram comes to power, which is going to happen. Uh, Persia will conquer Babylon. But then the goat, who is enraged against the ram, attacks him and destroys him. Uh, the goat grows very strong. There's this large horn that is broken and four horns on the goat's head takes its place. That all sounds weird, but historically all of this took place between the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. Uh, really, there are no commentators, whether they are biblical commentators or people looking at the Bible from an outside perspective. There are no commentators who disagree on what this means. Not really. Um, First, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. Then the Persians were very cruel and suppressed the rising Greeks, the various Greek nations, and they did it in, in harsh and hateful ways so that when Alexander the Great comes to prominence and unifies the Greek people, the Macedonians, the other Greek uh, clans against the Persians, it is more than just a conquest. It is a personal vendetta. It is, a, it is an act of rage. And when they beat the Persians, it's not just a subduing them, it's with the intent of utterly destroying them for their mistreatment over the previous centuries. So, um, th this all came to pass, and then Alexander the Great, who is represented here in this, this, this large horn on this ram's head, uh, at the peak of his power, mere 32 years old, dies dies suddenly, lived a debaucherous life, uh, lived a life uh, of rampant immorality, uh, becomes very ill on his conquest, and after conquering the known world, he dies
dies and they ask him on his deathbed, who should we leave the kingdom to go to? Because he doesn't have a biological heir. And he says, give it to the strong. And so they divide the kingdom to his four chief generals and it becomes four kingdoms. Now, verse 8 tells us, that the great horn, Alexander the Great, is broken and the kingdom divided. We see a little of that on this representation. Uh, we don't have the full map here, but you can see that the, the whole uh, Greek empire is divided into these different colored sections and they're named. You can read all about this historically. Uh, this all unfolds and is well attested to in secular history. All right, go to the next slide, Josh. Um, I think as we talk and think through this, this is a marvelous thing uh, to consider in the scriptures um, about the, the prophetic word of God. Um, if you remember, starting back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue, and in, those sta in that statue, four empires. And then in Daniel chapter 7, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Daniel has this vision of four beasts that represent four empires. And now we're getting a glimpse into two of those empires specifically, and we don't have to wonder which two. Chapter 8 is going to tell us specifically in the interpretation here that it's talking about the Persians and the Greeks. So God is laying all of this out long before history uh, has any of it taking place. And yet we have such a clear historical record that we can look at these chapters and unmistakably see exactly what they, all of these things mean. In other words, Daniel, looking at it from his perspective, didn't understand what every single one of these things meant historically, but they've already happened to us. We're not looking forward to a lot of these things. They've already concluded. And we can look and say, actually, this happens exactly the way God told Daniel that it was to happen. Which, again, brings us to a tough point. Um... If a person doesn't believe in God, and if a person does not worship God, then a person cannot accept the book of Daniel. you got to throw it out. Because if you allow that the book of Daniel was written in the time that it claims to be written, uh, by the person it claims to be written, then you're left unmistakably with the God who knows the future, which I'll go back to my Isaiah passage that I read a little bit ago. I am God. There is none like me, uh, declaring the end from the beginning. That is who God claims to be. Um, so what you'll find when you read about Daniel, and, and it won't take you very long to read it, you'll find basically two different perspectives. The perspective of those who think Daniel is a forgery, something written fraudulently very close to the time of Christ, and the perspective of those who say, actually, there's no reason to think that, um, we don't say that about any other ancient literature from this time period. And the only reason why you're saying it's fraudulent is because you don't want to believe that it was written when it purports to be written. Now, there's lots of evidence that Daniel was written exactly when it was supposed to be written. There's circumstantial evidence. For instance, we know that the Hebrew people took the scriptures very, very seriously. Um, we know that. That's well attested even historically. The emphasis they put on scribal integrity to where when a scribe copied a page in the Jewish faith, if they messed up one word on that page, the entire volume of what they were writing had to be discarded. Why did they think that? Because it wasn't just a religious tradition. They saw this as the word of God. And yet the idea that somehow, sometime in the second century, very close to Christ, somebody forged an entire book 
of Daniel and said, actually, guys, this was written four or five hundred years ago, uh, several hundred years ago, and then just slipped it into the middle of all of the rest of the Hebrew prophets. And we don't have any account of anyone saying, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. Where did this come from? There's no reference historically of anything being added late to any of this. Um, just like Ezekiel and Isaiah and the rest of the prophets are generally accepted from their time period, there's no reason to think that they aren't. Uh, Daniel should be accepted too. It's just not because people don't want to believe it's from that time period. If they believe it's from that time period, then they're confronted by the reality that this appears to be God knowing the future. And if God knows the future of the world, he knows what's going to happen at the end. And he knows what that means for us. And now all of a sudden the gospel is very compelling. The instructions of how we're supposed to live is very compelling. So I just want to be clear. We've talked about this before. I don't have 25 minutes to belabor it. There is no textual reason to think that Daniel was forged late. In fact, the reason why they say, well, it was probably done in the second century is because by the second century, the Hebrew Bible has been translated to the Greek language. That became the language of the, of the world that people spoke. And it's been distributed throughout the uh, known world at that time in a language everyone can read. And we know the book of Daniel was in it at that point in time because it's in those Greek translations. So there's no good reason to think that it was slipped in right then and there. There's no reason to think that the Jews would have been okay with that. They went on a huge revolt every time someone did anything with their sacred things. And yet, that's what commentators are left with. I think a Christian can look at the book of Daniel with great confidence and say, look, this is what God's word says. It tells us all of this stuff that archaeology has confirmed. It speaks clearly to Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus the Great and the Babylonian conflict, the fall of Babylon in one night. It speaks clearly to all of these things like people dying and burning fiery furnaces, all things that in the archaeological work of just the last two centuries, all that has confirmed. So there's no reason to doubt the book unless you just don't want to believe that God is God and he can tell the future. And then you have to doubt it. Then you have to find a way to say that it's not legitimate. Um, because the opposite leaves you with nothing else to fall on. Um, we'll move on. Um, so, uh, Jesus uh, talks about this in, uh, in uh, Luke 12, uh, talking about who we should truly honor and who we should truly be afraid of. I was going to go into a thing on it, but I'll skip it. Let's plow on into verse 9 of Daniel 8. It says, Out of one of them, one of these four horns that emerges after the death of Alexander the Great on the goat, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Notice there, not toward the whole earth, but towards a specific region of the Greek empire, and towards the glorious land, that's Jerusalem, towards, towards God's city. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. The place of his sanctuary, that is God's, was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of the desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So Daniel sees this whole thing. There's the temple of God. It's being defiled. They're not offering sacrifices to God anymore. This little horn has prohibited it, and he's having victory. And then there's the question, How long will all this happen? Verse 14, and he said to me for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, that's the river, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near when I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he stood me upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation." For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people." Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days." Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Now, here we could spend as much time as you want, as much time as you've got talking about all these things, but we're going to try to note the three main things and, uh, and, and uh, move on uh, this morning. The horns all throughout this chapter represent kings. They represent kings. You can go to the next slide, Josh. He fell asleep. Uh, but I got him back on track. There we go. Uh, he wasn't asleep. He was just really thinking hard about this. The horns in this chapter represent kings. Uh, verse 20, it calls the horns on the ram, the kings of Media and Persia. 21, the large horn on the goat, the king of Greece. In verse 23, a new king, a little horn that emerges, a new king in Greece, uh, specifically designated toward the south and the east and Jerusalem. First thing we notice, the horns represent kings. Second things, second thing we see in the text. Um, we should note the little horn that we see in Daniel chapter 8 is not the same as the little horn that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. Um, the little horn is different um, from Daniel chapter 7. There was 
a little horn in Daniel chapter 7, in the middle of the fourth empire, which is the Roman Empire. In that chapter, the fourth empire was represented by a great and terrible beast. It's not compared to an animal. And that beast has ten horns. And three of those horns are supplanted by one little horn that comes to rule in that fourth empire. That's very different from what we're reading here in Daniel chapter 8. Here we have a little horn that emerges as one of the four horns on this Grecian goat, this empire here. And this horn doesn't supplant any of the others. It doesn't come from a conglomerate of ten kings. And we're told specifically that it's Greek. And in chapter 7, when we saw the picture that represented Greek of a beast, it wasn't the fourth beast, it was this leopard, uh, picturing the speed at which Alexander the Great Uh, conquered the world, and it had four heads representing the four kingdoms that uh, the empire was divided up into. So this is talking about a different figure. The little horn of chapter 7 that arises in the fourth world empire is going to be the Antichrist that the Bible says so much about. It will be a real person, a person future to us. But the little horn of chapter 7 is a historical person named Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes is a well-known figure in history. He was just what this purports to be, a Greek ruler who came out of one of the four kingdoms that were divided up after Alexander the Great died. He conquered Jerusalem and he was cruel to the people of God there. He made himself a god those little coins that you see on the picture there, that those are coins that he had minted to celebrate himself. The inscription says, King Antiochus, God manifest. He made himself God. He afflicted the Jews by killing, murdering the high priest, and he set up a puppet priest to minister in the temple of God, which was a glorious, a very magnificent structure of worship. He put a statue of Zeus up in the temple to be worshipped, and rather than sacrificing the animals prescribed in the law, he sacrificed and slaughtered pigs and unclean animals. He made it illegal to follow the law of Moses for the Jews. If you circumcised your son as you were told to, you could be killed and your son could be killed. He, so he sought to, to afflict God's people more than just economically, more than just as puppets in his empire, but spiritually. He literally raised himself up in the place of God. Um, he was defeated in the Maccabean revolt, and that's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. In the New Testament, Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights. Uh, in John 10, Jesus goes to Jerusalem during that festival, which is in wintertime. So this is not a, uh, an unbiblical thing or a surprising thing. So uh, you could read entire books about this period of time. It's a, it was a horrible time of affliction for the Jewish people. Uh, it led to uh, a Jewish uh, revolt and victory that is remembered today. The Jews had no reason, that, there was no reason to think that they were going to defeat one of these four major kings of the Greek Empire. Uh, it was miraculous that they, that they won and that they uh, reclaimed the temple and reinstituted sacrifice and a right priestly lineage and began worshiping God again. And it all
all happened during the Greek Empire and before the Roman Empire. So, this is not the same guy as the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, that's the second thing we know. Third thing we note from this passage, the time frame given uh, is not clearly understood. We're told that this work that this guy's going to do is 2,300 days, 2,300 days. Now, that time frame is generally true in a representation of Antiochus's affliction of the Jews. But we lack the historical exact dates to be able to pinpoint them. In other words, archaeology, human secular history doesn't give us the specific dates of the beginning and the ends of some of these things. So, is the time period applicable of 2300 days? Yes, the best guess is that the time period begins in 171 BC when the high priest who was ministering in the temple was murdered by Antiochus and a false priest was set up and then ending in 164 BC when Antiochus is uh, killed and that's the end of his uh, uh, tyrannical rule over Jerusalem. Now, that fits the 2300-day time period that Daniel is given here supernaturally but we don't know the exact dates of, all, of, of the murder of the high priest. We know the year. We know he was murdered in this year, and Antiochus uh, fell in battle in this year. So uh, the, that's the best guess of the 2300 days. I tell you this because there are people who have tried to take these 2300 days and make them mean something that, that they can't possibly mean. Uh, Seventh-day uh, Adventists uh, believed that these 2,300 days were 2,300 years, and in the 1800s they were convinced that Jesus Christ was returning on this day because they counted 2,300 years up from this, and that did not happen. So understand what it means and what it doesn't. I'm being honest that there is not absolute certainty on the day it begins and the day it ends. That's not a problem with God's record. That's just a lack of information on the historical record. The time frame fits for what Antiochus did. I just can't tell you October 12th. You know, I, I can't tell you the exact day. And Daniel's given an exact day. So those are the three things we see. Now, wrapping up. Uh, next slide, uh, Josh. Uh, finally, I'm going to point out that there is something going on in verse 25 where the angel Gabriel is speaking of this little horn Antiochus Epiphanes. He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but probably also foreshadowing the Antichrist who will come at the end of the world before Jesus' return. In verse 25, it says, Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. That's a reference to Christ. But he shall be broken without human means. In other words, divinely judged. Sometimes in the Bible, we find that a prophecy can have two meanings. Or I should say, it can refer to two different things at the same time. Often when we see this, there is a primary meaning while also foreshadowing something else. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a passage that's addressed 
to the king of Tyre, who is a historical person, and its primary understanding should be towards the king of Tyre. And yet, there's a section of verses in that chapter in Ezekiel that speaks directly to Satan as if Satan is embodying the king of Tyre. So there's one message to the king of Tyre, but it's picturing a physical reality and a spiritual reality. There was a historical king of Tyre. There was also something satanic happening in the background. Um, there's no question that this chapter is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but it seems to be foreshadowing the Antichrist that Daniel is so troubled by in chapter 7. This is the Antichrist we are warned about in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, by Jesus, by Paul, by John. Here in Daniel 8, we're learning about Antiochus Epiphanes while getting a glimpse of something satanic. The spirit of the Antichrist is Satan. And there has been, there have been many people throughout world history who have embodied the spirit of the Antichrist against God's people. Antiochus Epiphanes was one. Hitler was one. There are many who fit the bill. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we'll close here. And if you don't want to turn, there is a slide to, but we'll close here to 1 John chapter 2. I want you to see, this is the Apostle John, and he's picturing this. This is not something that the New Testament uh, church, that our Christian church should be silent about. The New Testament authors speak to this. It doesn't mean we have to come to some, you know, exact understanding of every minute detail. But uh, the idea that, we're, that we should understand these things and hear about these things and be familiar with them is, is echoed throughout Paul's letters, through John's letters the book of Revelation, the teaching of Jesus at the end of his ministry. 1 John chapter 2, I'll just finish with this text here. Uh, we'll begin in verse 18. John writes, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now this is what I'm talking about. There is a real man, a real Antichrist that will come into the world in the future who will oppose God's people at the end of the earth. We call him the Antichrist or false Christ. Anti does not necessarily mean against, false. It will be against, but in the sense that he will, he will manifest himself as a Messiah, as God, as the chosen of God. Um, then John says, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Here John is saying that we should not be completely shocked when people leave the faith to follow the spirit of Satan at work in the world. This will happen and it does happen. The spirit of God is not the only spiritual force at work in the world. The spirit of Satan is real. Uh, it produces false Christs, false messiahs, and it produces false Christians. And though this is sad, it should not shock us. That's what John is saying. That's why he's talking about the Antichrist in the same message where he's talking about those who have left and abandoned the faith. Some people will make a profession of faith. They will say, Jesus is my Lord. Then they will stop serving Jesus. They will turn away from that profession of faith. They will reorganize their lives around their own agendas. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, a rejection of God and his Messiah in favor of self-worship. Uh, the last section from John, uh, if you'll skip to verses 22 and 23, you can read what's in between, but for our purposes, this is where he picks up this theme again. Uh, 
John asks, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so we run straight into the deepest and most important challenge of our human lives. What do we make of Jesus? What do we make of Jesus? Uh, the Antichrist will come proclaiming that Jesus was a fraud, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not the Messiah. He is not what he claimed to be, and he will purport himself to be those things. He will do so in a cataclysmic time for the world. People will be ready for a Messiah, ready for something divine to save them from what they are experiencing, both naturally and supernaturally, on our planet. And he will purport himself to be that Savior in rejection of Jesus. What do you make of Jesus? In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is something exclusive in Jesus' claims about himself. C.S. Lewis, the, the author who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, great uh, intellectual from Great Britain and, and well acclaimed, he, he, he is he's known for making the argument that when we look at Jesus, we must see one of three things. Either a liar who said he was the son of God, that he was the only way to God, even though he knew that he wasn't, or a lunatic, someone who truly thought he was the Son of God, who thought he was the only way to God, but was out of his mind, because people who think they're God and aren't are crazy, or Lord, exactly who he proclaims to be. And when you look at Jesus, you must come, no matter how polite about it you try to be, to one of those three conclusions. Either this is a lie, or Jesus is Lord. You're not left with any other option. Now here in the book of Daniel, we get this picture of this false Christ foreshadowing another false Christ. And in chapter 9, as Daniel continues to wrestle with these things, we will learn more about Jesus and his coming. Daniel is very troubled by these things. God does not leave Daniel infinitely troubled by these things. But in chapter 9, as Daniel prays and he pleads with God, God lays out a plan for Jesus, which is beautiful and marvelous, and which I hope you'll join me in celebrating in the weeks to come. Let's uh, close with the word of prayer, and we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great faithfulness. And I pray that it will be settled in our hearts forever exactly who your son Jesus is. That we will not step out onto eternity with some false or vain hope that our own good deeds, that our own righteousness is enough to see us through to whatever comes next, but that with confidence we will know what's next because you have told us. And we will be prepared by faith receiving forgiveness for our sins and the promise of an inheritance in your kingdom. And that when Jesus Christ returns, we will be celebrating the glory of what we are seeing unfolding finally in front of long-awaiting eyes rather than trembling as though a judge has come to the earth to reckon us 
to our final judgment. Help us to love you, to see freedom in knowing you, to be grateful for our position as sons and daughters of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.